Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. For our Advent sermons, we want to look at a handful of passages from Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. So we find ourselves this morning in that second chapter. Hebrews chapter 2, and I will read verses 5 through 13. Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fit that God, for him and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Amen. We trust God will bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for the mercy you show us, for the scriptures, the word of truth, your spirit that opens our eyes and gives understanding. So as the word is read and preached this morning, please do that. Bring forth much fruit from your word. May Christ and his gospel be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 410 AD, so over 1,500 years ago, the mighty city of Rome fell to the Visigoths, a Germanic invading tribe from the north. And that fall of Rome produced quite a shock among the Romans. In fact, many interpreted the event as punishment from the gods, punishment for abandoning the traditional Roman religions. You see, you often think of Roman emperors as persecuting Christians, and many of the early ones did for about two or three hundred years. Yet eventually, Rome made Christianity legal when one of its own emperors became a Christian. And later, Rome took the next step and made Christianity the official religion of the empire. And so when the empire fell about a 100 years after that, many said, this is punishment from the gods. We abandon our traditional religions, and now we do not enjoy their favor. However, the Christian theologian Augustine, or Augustine, took a different approach. He viewed Rome as just another manifestation of the earthly city. So an entity that's composed of individuals devoted to the cares and the pleasures of this world. And the earthly city stands in distinction from the city of God, 
which is made up of those who dedicate themselves to God and to his values. And Augustine then presents all of human history, which was in and of itself something new, charting out history and a reason for history. Augustine presents all of human history as a conflict between these two cities. And while all earthly cities will eventually pass away, just as Rome did and whatever cities would come, only the city of God endures forever. Now, Augustine's contrast there between the ways of the world, the ways of God's kingdom, the contrast there, that lies at the heart of the passage I've just read you today. Notice how the passage opens. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. Notice the language there of subjection and rulership. Who is the true king who rules over God's people? It is Jesus. And as we saw last week in the the sermon, the previous Lord's Day, he's the one who, having provided purification for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God. He shared God's very nature and then he obtains his inheritance, rulership over the nations by providing salvation for sinners. So Jesus has begun to reign. We studied that last week. And therefore, he's greater than the angels. Remember, they had a lot to do in revealing God and and in God's purposes of redemption. But they didn't actually bring about redemption. That honor belongs to Jesus. And so having sat down as king and having begun to rule, as we come into today's passage, we read, okay, it's not to angels that that rule has been subjected. No, it is, as we will see, to King Jesus. He's reigning now, and there's a world to come. That, that spiritual reign will one day become visible, part of this very earth. And so as we come to today's passage, it's asking us this question. Which king do you serve? To which kingdom do you belong? You see, on the one hand, the passage will present to us a kingdom in rebellion, a kingdom where there's no grace and mercy, a kingdom where there's only shame and condemnation, and a kingdom in which there's no purpose and suffering. Everything is just away. Sound familiar? And on the other hand, there's the kingdom of God, where suffering leads to honor where grace and mercy abound, and where we find acceptance in the family of God. And you know what brings about that kingdom, what brings about that contrast, the event that is at the heart of what we celebrate every year at Christmas. The incarnation, God the Son takes on human flesh. He lives among us. He dies in our place. That's that's the event this passage celebrates. So it focuses our attention. It calls us then to serve the king of Christmas. So let's look at the three reasons why we should serve that king. Here's the first reason. Because of the original rebellious kings. What does the king of the earth look like? We think, yeah, that's God. He's the king of the earth. Well, perhaps surprisingly, the king of the earth actually looks very human. Look at verse 6 again. Here the author cites Psalm 8. 
And that psalm celebrates God's work in creation. If we were to read the whole psalm, we would notice two themes which come out right here in verse 6. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. Again, that's right from Psalm 8. Here's the two themes you'd study. If you went home this Lord's Day, you open up. I'm going to read Psalm 8. Here's the two things that you would notice. On the one hand, you would have the vastness of creation. Think of the moon and the stars, God's glory displayed in the heavens, all the animals throughout the world. Some of you enjoy looking at the night sky and tracing the events that happen out there. Think what you feel every time you see a beautiful sunrise or a sunset. It's God's glory and creation. It's fast. It's great. And yet, on the other hand, you had small, relatively insignificant man. That's why the psalm asks, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? What is a son of man, an individual human, that you care for him? What is mankind in the grand scheme of things? He's feeble. He's frail. In fact, the Hebrew word for mankind back in Psalm 8, it's a word that emphasizes humanity's frailty. When you go to the Grand Canyon, it evokes a feeling of awe. It it, it overwhelms you. People don't get that feeling when they talk to other humans. So what role do we play then in God's great creation? Well, here's the irony of the psalm. And this is why the author of Hebrews cites it here. Man, though small, was appointed to be the ruler of God's creation. Despite that relative smallness, humans were intended to govern, to be the kings of God's creation. That's what the first part of verse 7 is saying. It's actually a compliment. You have made them a little lower than the angels. That sounds like, oh, we're low. That's missing out. No, humans are far above the rest of creation. And they get right up to the level of the angels, the creatures that God made to serve him right around his throne. And in that lofty created position, God takes humans and he says, okay, you are going to govern my creation. I crown you with glory and honor and I put all of my works under your hands. And just in case there is any doubt, that that's the point, the author of Hebrews adds his own comment there in verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. God intended humans to govern his creation. But as wonderfully as that story begins, we know, doesn't it, the human story quickly takes a tragic turn. The human king rulers rebel against their creator. The governors of creation spit in the face of their creator. Eve, deceived by the serpent, and Adam, choosing to rebel, they sin against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And when God punishes that first sin, there's the guilt, there's the corruption, all those things are spoken of in the text, but he also does what? He puts a curse on creation itself. So that mankind, having forfeited the right to reign without opposition, will now try to reign a creation that is groaning and that is in 
rebellion. And that's the reality our passage touches on. Look at the very end of verse 8. Having celebrated mankind's rulership, the author says, Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. This is the way it's supposed to be. But you don't see that in reality, do you? And again, I want to emphasize, humans haven't lost the obligation to govern creation. We still bear the image of God. We still have an obligation to be good stewards and to cultivate. And yet, that is a task we will never accomplish perfectly. That's why when you look around, you see what? A creation that can't be tamed. Ferocious beasts. Rebellious people. Natural disasters. You even think, okay, all of the advances that God has kindly given to humans, we recognize his gifts of his providence. Can humans master creation? No. And if there's any year when we can answer that question easily, it's this year, isn't it? You won't find a king or a kingdom in this world that can master everything else. You can't do it. And you won't find anything out there that's worth belonging to and that's worth serving. It can't do it. It's either unable or it's sinful. It just can't do the job. You know, it's interesting is sometimes people look around in the world, particularly unbelievers, and they see these problems. And they say, yeah, this is the evidence that God is not real, that God is not truthful. Interesting, the author of Hebrews, he wasn't afraid of that reality. In fact, he considered it to be evidence for the trustworthiness of the story of the fall. The fact that we are sinful. He's saying, yeah, things should be different. But the fact that we don't see things working the way they should be, it's not a problem with God. It's because we've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And Jesus has begun to reign. Again, that that was clear in last week's passage, and it will come up again in this week's passage. Jesus has begun to reign, and yet his reign isn't fully accomplished yet. In other words, heaven does not come to earth. He's at the right hand of God, and yet this passage speaks of what? A world to come. So I think it's good for us to remember that, that Jesus is reigning, but things aren't perfect quite yet. That'll comfort you as a believer, particularly when God does not appear to answer prayer. When there are illnesses or death in the family, when you're struggling with different sins and you can't get those under control and you wonder why God won't make the situation better and take things away, when there are financial needs or when you're being harassed for your faith. Jesus is king, and yet that kingship is still in process of coming. It will one day come when he comes again, but right now we're going to live in the middle of that tension. It's really no wonder, by the way, most Jewish exegetes, particularly before uh, the coming of Christ and in in the traditions coming out of the the Pharisees and whatnot, when they would interpret Psalm 8, they would highlight the theme of man's insignificance. They wouldn't highlight the theme of his rulership, they'd highlight his insignificance. Why? Well, when you look around, that's what you see. And of course, lastly, before we move on, not only is it what we see, it's We contribute to it, don't we? Because we all rebel against God. We're all born rebels against God. When we sin against him, that is rebellion. That's part of the reason creation is in the mess it's in. So we need King Jesus. We need the king of Christmas because look at this original rebellious kings. Look how bad they've done. But then secondly, we need King Jesus because of the perfect suffering king. 
And this is where Jesus enters the picture in our text. We don't yet see everything subject to him, but there is something we do see, even if we have to see it with the eye of faith. Verse 9 reads, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. Here's a pathway you find often in the scriptures. Some call it the way of the Son. The Son of God leaves heaven. And though he is still in nature God, he adds to his person a human nature. Two natures in one person. And he walks among us and he suffers and he dies. And only then is he raised and exalted to heaven and crowned with glory and honor. Quite simply, friends, Jesus becomes like you in order to save you. That's the big idea. But there is a point here, by the way, I don't want you to miss. As we develop that big picture, don't miss this particular point. Notice again, look at verse 9. It cites the line from Psalm 8, this particular line, made lower than the angels for a little while. Now remember, we said that's talking about mankind. But here the author takes that line and he applies it to Jesus. So while humans are the the crowning act of creation, they're, they're only slightly lower than the angels, if the psalm applies that to Jesus, what is it telling us about Jesus? That he became a man, yes, but not only that, he became a man in your place. He became a human in order to represent you. He put himself into the human story. And he said, I will accomplish what Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, because he was the representative there. I will accomplish what he failed to do. And so Jesus took on humanity and he did our job. Now, Hebrews doesn't explore that anymore here. But that's what we read about in the Gospels, Jesus living out this perfect life. What Hebrews focuses on here is not only did he take our job, he took on our penalty. That's the rest of verse 9. He is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he didn't take on angel nature. He didn't taste death for them. He took on the nature of humans. Those are the ones he helps. And he tasted death in their place. And because he did, he has now been crowned with glory and honor. And also, by the way, before we, before we start to apply this, the, the author here is actually also making a subtle point. He's, he's answering a potential objection Remember, what did we read about humankind when they were made? They're a little lower than the angels. So Jesus takes on that position that he's lower than the angels. He becomes a man. Wait a minute. I thought the author of Hebrews was trying to show that Jesus is better than the angels. That's why he says there in verse 9, he was made lower than the angels for a little while. But he is now crowned with glory in honor. In other words, that time of his humiliation, it was, it was only temporary. Just long enough for him to live and die and be raised in our place. Doesn't mean, by the way, Jesus no longer has a human nature. When he appears after his resurrection and his, his ascension, people are still able to see him. He points to his own scars. 
but the humiliation associated with his time on this earth, that has ended. He is now exalted. Why? Because he did the job. He obeyed in your place. He died to pay for your disobedience. He suffered, and that leads to honor. And so he now, as the God-man, has been exalted above all creation. Jesus, because of the Christmas event, he is the king of creation. Now, again, maybe on the one hand, this, this just sounds like wishful thinking. You know, this just sounds like the myths of a previous age. Read the news. Look outside, man. Don't you see we've got real problems that we need help with? Well, the author of this book considered this to be truth that was most relevant to what we face every day. That this wasn't wishful thinking. That this wasn't just some kind of escapism. That God had acted to solve the biggest problem the world will ever have. So it's not just wishful thinking. In fact, if you think about it this way, I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again here. If there's no God, can you really even think of the world as having problems? Can you look out and call evil, evil and disaster, disaster, if there isn't a good God that allows us to actually call something evil? So if salvation isn't true, in other words, if Jesus isn't true, if this isn't the most important truth in the world, then there's a sense in which there really aren't any problems out there. If salvation isn't real, then maybe sin isn't real either. But if sin is real, and if you live on this earth, then you should think it is. Then you have here in the gospel a solution to the problem of man's sin. And so I would also say to us as a church, if this text is who Jesus says he is, then we should do as this text says we should do. We should crown him with glory and honor. Now, that's something God does definitively, but it is also something we do in recognition of what God has done. We do it when we worship. We do it when we gather. We seek to make Jesus central to our worship, his gospel central to our message, as his person at the center of our life as a church. Because it's his grace you'll need. As we've said over and over again, not only in these days, but in the days to come. So let's feed on him. Let's, let's worship him and draw near to know him and enjoy him. And let's look then at the third idea from the rest of the text. We should worship the king of Christmas. We should serve him. Why? Because of the exalted saving king. He's the suffering perfect king, but now he's also the exalted saving king. And verses 10 through 13 are going to focus on that idea, the results of Jesus's finished work. Now, verse 2 is a little bit of an overlap, kind of ties the two sections together by restating a little bit of the previous idea about Jesus's uh, becoming human. Verses 11 to 13, then we'll say, okay, because he did that, here are the results. You can join his family. So let's just trace out that flow of the final idea. Verse 10 reads, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So once again, what was the goal of Jesus' work? In tasting death, what does he accomplish? He brings many sons and daughters to glory. 
And that's, again, what these verses will focus on, that he has accomplished the goal of his work. But how, then? How does Jesus bring us to glory? Through suffering as a human. Notice the text says, God made the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now you say, wait, I thought Jesus was already perfect. Well, he was as far as his position as God is concerned. But when the text speaks of him here as a pioneer, it's focusing on his job, on his vocation, when he took on humanity. And he said, okay, I will do something that's never been done before. I'll chart a course that's never been charted before. I will perfectly obey God throughout my entire life lived. And even though that will involve suffering, that's what will lead to life. Now that would be a massive encouragement, by the way, to the Hebrews, the first readers of this letter, who were being asked to persevere in the faith despite their suffering. Jesus shows them and he shows us, though it's foolish in the world's eyes, obeying even if you suffer. That is the way to glory and to life. And should God send you pain, should God send you suffering, that he chooses not to alleviate, that's not wasted time. That's not a wasted life. It has a good end. And that may not even be, oh, I see some payoff in this life. Oh, it worked out to do this. It worked out to do that. No, it just pays off and that we obtain the glory of God. You see, often we want to relieve our pain, and there is a place for that. But sometimes we're a little tipped to the other side where we don't even want to use our pain. So as to wrestle more passionately with the character and with the purposes of God. We think if I just could get rid of the pain, then I would know God. No, we can know him in the midst of pain. Or we think, okay, so that's the means to the end. So I'll get to know God and then my pain will go away. No, not always. But what God teaches us, again, suffering leads to glory. That is what Jesus proves through his life and resurrection. Verse 11 then comes to focus on, as I've said, the results of that. Verse 11 reads, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Friends, it focuses here on Jesus, the one who makes you holy by saving you. And then it focuses on humans, people who become holy when they trust in the work of Christ. Those two become one spiritual family. When you place your trust in him for eternal life, he brings you into his family. He makes you holy. He makes you clean. Is that something you want? So wrestle with guilt or or face your ongoing temptations? Jesus makes you holy, definitively. He does it in him. Keep growing, keep growing, but don't be crushed with guilt and discouragement. So Jesus, because he went through suffering unto death, he can then make us holy and bring us into one spiritual family. And by the way, when he does so, he does so joyfully. The passage says he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. It's not, oh, you're in my family. I guess I have to put up with you. No, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're like, Jesus is not ashamed of you. 
Now, in the ancient world, the, the idea that Jesus was a crucified God, that was a scandal. People would have been ashamed of that. They valued honor. They valued dignity. Those were the things that mattered most in their day and age as they still do in ours. But Jesus said, I'm going to go against that current. And I am going to identify with these people, and they, in turn, can then identify with me. I'm not ashamed of them, and so neither should they be ashamed of me. And lastly, then, just just to drive the point home, that suffering leads to glory, and here's the result obtained when you trust in God this way. The author cites three phrases from the Old Testament. They, they basically drive his point home. I'm just going to give you the main idea of each. Again, you want to go back and reread these original passages. That They're really chock full. They'd make for a good Sunday afternoon reading or study. But here are the main ideas for our comfort and encouragement. The first citation comes from Psalm 22. That's the well-known psalm Jesus cited on the cross when he said, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, when he's on the cross, he cites from the first half of the psalm. That whole first half, you have a righteous man crying out for deliverance. But then the psalm changes its tune. You come into the second part of the psalm, and that lament changes to thanksgiving. Why? Because God has exalted and vindicated the sufferer. Having suffered, the righteous man can now return to the congregation of the righteous, and celebrate with his brothers and sisters. And Jesus basically walks that path. That righteous man suffered, he was cut off, but then God raised him up and he returned to his family. And Jesus says, I walk that path. And so now I have this family, this spiritual family of God. And the second and third citations both come from Isaiah 8. Now that may sound like, hey, what's Isaiah 8 about? It's from the section with the well-known virgin birth prophecy, Christmas prophecy. And the whole section deals with this main message. The prophet is asking the king, he's asking the people, look, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust other nations to take care of you? And Isaiah, he can read the mood. He sees, you know, they're not going to trust God. They're going to trust the other nations. So you know what he does? He writes down his prophecies. He commits them to his disciples. And he says, you keep those safe until one day God will vindicate that prophecy. And as for me, second line here, I will trust in the Lord. And then Isaiah points to his children. And if you remember, God had told him, I want you to name your children this way, because that's going to be a sign to the people that what I have said, I will do. And you and your children and all those who believe, that'll be the believing remnant identified with me that God fulfills his word. And indeed, he fulfills it among this new family. So the citations can be a little complicated, but it's basically just this idea. All throughout the scriptures we see when people put their trust in God, they are always vindicated. Jesus did that. Now he has his people. You can do that, and you will know the grace and the glory of God. And friends, you'll know that in the midst, as we started today, in the midst of a story that has gone radically wrong, but that God has chosen to fix decisively. We were supposed to govern, but we rebelled. So God became a man, and he tasted death on our Behalf, And so now when you trust him, you're in his family. There's acceptance. He makes you holy. 
He's not ashamed of you. You can know his glory and grace in the midst of your own suffering. You can trust him. You can obey him. He's our king of Christmas. And so within his kingdom, within his city, we enjoy life. So let's give thanks for those things. Let's pray.